This podcast is sponsored by Made in God's Image, the 2022 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Log on reformedevents.org and hear more at the conclusion of today's podcast. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The doctrine of inseparable operation is actually an exegetical conclusion upon which uh, the whole doctrine of the Trinity rests, and in fact upon which the whole divinity of Christ and the divinity of the Holy Spirit rests. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my good friend James Dolzo. James, how are you doing today? Jonathan, I'm doing well, and I'm, I'm really excited about our guest today. I know you are. We have talked about this uh, for some time, and we're glad to finally uh, have this happen. Uh, our guest today is uh, Adonis Vidu. He's professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's authored several books, but the one we're going to discuss today is a, is a, uh, a weighty and important book called The Same God Who Works All Things and subtitle, Inseparable Operations in Trinitarian Theology. So you can see already that we're in the deep end of the pool, but we're, we're, we're both very excited about this. So uh, Adonis Vidu, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. I wanted to start with a very basic overview question. The, the subtitle of your book speaks of inseparable operations, and that's really at the at the core of what you're uh, what you're studying in this in this book, and so I wonder if, in layman's terms, you could explain what is meant by the doctrine of inseparable operations, and then and then maybe expand on that and say why should Christians and why have Christians cared about maintaining this doctrine? Mm, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Um, again, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. I really appreciate the work you guys are doing, and. Uh, uh, I'm familiar with uh, James's work uh, on divine simplicity and uh, the doctrine of divine attributes. Uh, again, it's a real pleasure. The doctrine of inseparable attributes is basically stressing uh, the uh, the unity of God, the unity of the Trinity, uh, but not without the distinction between the persons. Um, and the way I should sort of uh, describe it and explain it is that I think in, in, in our churches, there has been a pendulum sw- uh, swing in the direction of a kind of a functional tritheism, uh, where uh, very often we separate the work of the three persons, and we tend to treat them as being three different, uh, three distinct gods, three distinct beings. Um, so I think a correction is much needed in this regard. Uh, the doctrine of inseparable operations basically stresses that because God is one, uh, all the operations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the world or in the economy, as we say, are going to be inseparable or indivisible or unified. That is to say, you are not going to find them each doing their own thing, um, much like perhaps uh, a team of basketball players or a team of football players uh, where each player um, has their own part to play, their own role to play uh, in the game. Um, but really, you, you are going to have a single acting God. Um, that's what the doctrine says, uh, very, put very simply. Uh, the, the reason the church has affirmed this, and I should say it has affirmed this really universally in, in the first um, 14, 15, 16 centuries of, of the church, 
is because this was their way of confessing the divinity of Christ and the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So the doctrine of inseparable operation is actually an exegetical, uh, an exegetical conclusion upon which uh, the whole doctrine of the Trinity rests. And in fact, upon which the whole divinity of Christ and the divinity of the Holy Spirit rests. Because what we see in the New Testament particularly is Christ doing exactly the works of the Father. To Christ is being ascribed creation, the work of creation, the single act whereby God brings into existence something outside of himself. To him is ascribed also the work of um, covenant faithfulness, salvation, forgiveness of sins. Everything that Christ does is, in fact, the Father doing, as Christ tells his disciples. Uh, so so it, it was because of this observation of how Christ's works are actually divine works uh, that the doctrine was uh, sort of established. And it, it was only on the basis of that that we could say that Christ is divine without breaking apart the strict Jewish monotheism that Christians inherited. If that were broken up, wouldn't I mean, would one of the implications maybe be Arianism, where Christ works, but his work is really, his work in the world is, is a numerically distinct operation from the Father's work in the world? Is that, that's sort of what you have in Arianism, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And if, if those work, works would be broken apart, um, then really, even about the Father, one could not say that he is a creator, uh, because, the, because the New Testament ascribes creation precisely to Christ. So that means that if Christ is just a kind of an intermediary uh, through whom God the Father creates, but himself not being equally active in that same action, then he's not really creator. And you have, you're sort of back to this Gnostic idea or even Marcionite idea where you have the God of the Old Testament and, and, and then the God of the New Testament, two different beings. I always think of this in the Nicene Creed. The, the, we tend to think the anti-Arianism starts when they affirm, you know, God of God, very God of very God. But it's really when they say that, that, that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Even there, the Arian has already, already finds himself in disagreement because he's attributing, as you say, that work to Christ and not to the Father. Uh, exactly. And so inseparable operations ensures uh, that we don't that we don't sort of parcel out the persons into distinct beings. Maybe if we could and get at this a little bit. I said we wouldn't get into the weeds when we were prefacing our recording, but maybe just a tiny bit. Um, what is the basis of this unity of operations? Because you're saying more than unity of operations. For instance, you know, I, I think of Aquinas' illustration of, of two men carrying a boat, where you have a concurrence of two coordinate operators. One guy lifts the front end of the boat and the other lifts the back end of the boat. And so there's a unity of operations. They concur in one effect, um, mm -hmm. the moving of the boat um, or uh, a husband and wife uh, in, in uh, br bringing forth a child concur in a single copulative operation. Um, how is the unity of the divine operations? Why do we say inseparable? In other words, as opposed to just sort of um, unified, what is the basis of that inseparability? Why are we saying when Jesus says, you know, the father, my father is working until now and I myself am working um, mm -hmm. and they perceive him to be claiming divinity by that. What, what is the nature of operation? I'm thinking particularly here of how it comes from a nature or an mm -hmm. essence. Yeah, um, great question. It's it's getting a little bit into the weeds, but not too much here. Okay. Um, I, I would the say short weeds. I, the short weeds. Yeah, what I try to do in the book is to say that on the one hand, 
we have inseparable operation as an exegetical conclusion. But on the other hand, you can sort of um, have a deductive approach from the unity of God and particularly the simplicity of God, um, where if you if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity correctly and, and in an orthodox way, then you will say that the persons do not uh, partition the divine essence, uh, that the persons are basically identical with the divine essence. Um, and the only distinction between them is, is their relations of origin. But within that same unity of being, uh, they are not different parts of that same God. So that means that when God operates, it's, it, you have a unified essence. Uh, which operates. And and the analogy that I try to I kind of use this analogy throughout the book, you may have seen it, the analogy of magnet. I hope I'm not making it do too much work uh, or illegitimate kind of work. Um, it does a lot of work, but it does uh, a lot it's, of work, good, yeah. it's good work. It's good. Work. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is limited. It has its own limitations to be sure. But I think in this case, it may be helpful because you see in a magnet, when a magnet att- uh, attracts, um, say, a, uh, a paperclip, um, it's, it's really the whole magnet that's exercising the, the force upon the, the paperclip, attracting it to itself. Even though within that unity of the magnet, you, we have these uh, irreducible distinctions between the North Pole and the South Pole, but they are not parts of the magnet, right? I mean, if you think they're parts, just try cutting, you know, cutting one from the other, and you will not have the same North and the same South, or the same magnet for that matter. Uh, and I think in that way, it's particularly helpful because it, it shows you in a magnet, the, the, the poles are functions of a magnetic relationship. And, and you might say that within the unity of the divine substance, you have this procession of the persons within that same unity uh, predicated upon a number of essential operations, specifically knowledge and will. So yeah, that's, that, that's because, you, because it's really one agent, one, one God. And it's because persons operate in virtue of natures. So we can't, we can't sort of, right. un, we can't decouple my, my personhood from my human nature and still have a basis for operations. In other words, I, I only do human things in virtue of humanity. Um, mm-hmm. And we'd say the same thing. Mm-hmm. The Father, Son, Spirit, yeah. odd extra do divine things in virtue of divinity. And since there aren't a plurality of divinities, there can only be a singular operation. That's the from above. I guess that's the from above approach, uh, as opposed to that more synthetic from below approach, where you're looking at the work of the the sun and the spirit, um, and and taking your deductions from that. Well, I have a question about the kind of from below perspective. I think at a maybe a popular level, or or at the level of someone who's reading his Bible and trying to make sense of all this. One of the questions that emerges it comes directly from the fact of the incarnation, and and mm-hmm. and and many will say, but isn't it the case that it is the second person of the Trinity, and only the second person of the Trinity who is um, incarnate, uh, mm-hmm. and and so in what sense is this uh, intention with that or? You know, just at a basic level, why can't we speak in those ways about uh, separate operations uh, mm-hmm. of these of these distinct mm-hmm. persons? Adonis, can you nail this one in two minutes? This is a great question. Sure, absolutely. I, I will try to nail it in two <laughs> minutes. So uh, we, we, you can take three if you need to. <laughs> okay. So um, the distinction that I want to make in the book is between operations and missions. Uh, in an operation, you have God bringing about 
certain created effects in, in the world outside of God. In a mission, on the other hand, you have a self-communication of a divine person to a creature. Therefore, what you have in the incarnation is a self-communication specifically of the son to his human nature. But the human nature is the equal production of all the Trinity. The whole Trinity brings about the incarnation, but the human nature belongs specifically to Christ. I mean, to the son. So one quick analogy here. Uh, a pretty social Trinitarian kind of analogy, so don't take it too far afield. This one really has We've to be corrected. Warned. Yes, but be warned. But you have you know, a gentleman and a butler, for example, and, and the butler is helping the gentleman get dressed. They're both doing the dressing, basically. But it's really it's only the gentleman that's actually being dressed. Even though both are producing the action of dressing, only one of them is receiving it. And, and Cyril of Alexandria, for example, speaks about the incarnation as the clothing of the sun with a human nature. So the analogy works, you know, in that historical sense as well. Take the magnet too. The whole magnet at attracts the needle, but only one of the poles receives the needle or the paperclip to itself. And therefore, and the paperclip only receives the properties of, or the existence, if I, if I could say, of one of the poles. Uh, not the other pole. So there's distinction within the, within the unity. Uh, one quick uh, note at the end here um, is that this question uh, of, about the incarnation, this objection is really well known in the, in, in, in the church fathers. This is not a modern thing. It's not a modern objection. It's something that they already knew and they were prepared to answer in this way exactly. So can you, can you just tie that back up again to the distinction you made at the beginning uh, uh, and and specifically relegating this to mission, I I I, I want to make sure that that this is sure. this is clear. Yes. So so then, even though the human nature of of Jesus Christ is produced by all the Godhead, all the Trinity, the the very existence of Jesus Christ, the existence of that human nature is specifically the existence of the Son. So it, it, it receives that over and above its natural, its natural uh, operations, as it were, just like the paperclip over and above its natural uh, operations receives the magnetism and it receives the charge of one of its poles in the same way the human nature of Jesus Christ now exists in and as the Son specifically, not as the Father, not as the Holy Spirit. And that is the self-communication of the Son to that human. And that's not an additional odd extra operation that the son undertakes in distinction to the father and the spirit. So that all, all yeah. three, all, not all three persons are incarnated, but all three persons actively incarnate can, in the sense of produce the incarnation. Can we say it that way? Produce the incarnation. I could say that. Yeah. That's why I like to really um, uh, sort of clarify the meaning of an operation as the production of an effect. Uh, and, and once you understand it as that, you can distinguish it from the missions really easily. And, and this is a confusion that's very broad. I think many people talk about mission as in terms of the role that the sun plays in the economy, in terms of the kinds of things that he does in the economy. I, and I want to keep it a little bit more, more cl clearly. No, I noticed, I noticed in your book that you don't elide it into mere role. Um, but in, in particular, yeah. and a, a a taking into relation to the person of the son uniquely. And that's what makes the incarnation unique to the son in that he is the one that personally terminates and through his personal act of being actualizes the human nature. But in terms of the operation of producing, let's say the hypostatic union, the hypostatic union is the production of the father, son, and the Holy spirit. 
Um, the hypostasis to whom yeah. that mm-hmm. human nature comes is none other than the sun. But that's not a distinct operation of the sun, but it is a distinct mission of the sun. And that's, and you would yes. make a distinction. It might, yeah. Yeah. And I also distinguish between state and an act or an action. Right. I say, I say the incarnation is a state of the sun. It's an act of the whole Trinity. That is helpful. Only that, the sun that receives is it. Well, I'm sorry to say that we are out of time. That's our 15 minutes. Uh, I, I wish, I, I wish we weren't, it goes by quickly, but, but uh, thank you very much for making time for us today. And, and far more importantly, I have to say, thank you very much for your labors in, in writing this book. Um, I, I can't remember whether James said this before we were uh, on the air or, or or after we started recording, but uh, a book that will no doubt be referenced uh, long into the future. So th- thanks very much for it. Appreciate it very much, friends. James, you read through Adonis Fidu's book very carefully. You read through it more carefully than I, than I have had the chance to yet. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say that, although I've looked through it. Um, I think it's important for us to explain to our listeners that we really value this book, but it is a certain kind of book, and we, we want to be clear about that. Yeah, this is a very serious work of theology. Um, Adonis says in the foreword or in the intro that he spent six years researching it, and that is really evidenced in spades uh throughout the book. I want to say just a couple things about it to commend it to our listeners, but also to kind of situate this book in the landscape of theology books, uh, because they seem to come out in an unceasing number. Uh, and some deserve uh, an extraordinary mention just as works of, as really great achievements of scholarship. And this is one of those books. This is a book about Trinitarian theology. And though he is focusing specifically on the question of inseparable operations, because the, the denial of inseparable operations is a sort of theological gateway drug to something like a soft tritheism, which he mentioned at the beginning of our interview. And so there is a, there's a, a deep theological importance uh, to understanding this doctrine. And he does a great job expositing it, both sort of from above, why the unity of the divine nature requires it, but also from below, why the text of Scripture in the way that it characterizes particularly the work of the Son and Spirit uh, vis-a-vis the Father requires this doctrine as well. It's not only that, though. I should just simply say the listener should be aware that if he or she picks up this volume, this is this is a work of really top-tier scholarship engaged with the church fathers, thoroughly engaged with the medievals, especially with Thomas Aquinas, very conversant with the Protestant tradition, um, not only conversant with it, but favorable toward it, um, and also with modern theology. And so the scope of this is really grand, but I should simply say this. um, Sometimes a book can seem to have grand scope and be populated with lots of footnotes and give the appearance of vast learning. But the proof, as they say, is in the pudding. Uh, The proof of that vast learning is in really the heart of the text itself. Is the text really engaged deeply with those interlocutors and with those issues? And um, this book is certainly that sort of book, deeply engaged with the challenges to inseparable operations and toward the proclivities to lose it. Um, So I would say this, this is not a discouragement in any way toward our listeners uh, to to pick up the book. This is the kind of book, we might have said this off the air with Adonis, 
this is the kind of book that will be read for many years to come as sort of a, a landmark treatment of this ancient doctrine. Um, not just for not just for purposes of historical curiosity, um, but for purposes of maintaining Trinitarian orthodoxy in our own time. Uh, and I think this is a book that contributes to that end um, greatly. I will say this as well: it deserves repeated readings. I've already read some sections of it a few times over just to get hold of it, and I know that I know that I'll be returning to this book as long as I have the responsibility to teach or understand Trinitarian theology, um, which is hopefully the rest of my life, uh, this is a book that's going to stay on the shelf and is going, to, is going to warrant repeated visits. And it's a book that I hope in some areas to grow into. And I would encourage our listeners to give it that same opportunity. Read it, go through the experience of having to slog through the difficult sections, and then anticipate that over time, you'll come even to understand it more. Yeah. I agree with everything you said, and I have not read it line by line, although maybe by the time this gets aired, I will have had the opportunity to. But but you can sort of get a sense for whether someone really understands, whether they've really engaged or whether they're just sort of parroting, echoing other things they've heard, which might be true things. But this this is this is real engagement at a substantive level. The other thing I would say is this, that um whether or not our listeners all read this book, the reality is they need to understand why inseparable operations, why, why that's an important doctrine. So we, we do commend the book, but what we really want to say is you, you may not have thought about this and you may not have even been able to see the errors in, in, in many modern treatments of, of Trinitarian theology, but but that's something to to really engage with and to and to think about clearly. It's vitally important. Well, for any of you who are interested in tackling this volume, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. We will have uh, a place there for you to enter your name and information for the opportunity to win our free copy of the book. And for others, again, we hope that you'll consider it, consider taking on this great challenge of reading it, or at least investigate further um, orthodox theological expressions of this doctrine of inseparable operations. Uh, we want to say to all of you, thank you very much. So many of you have passed along this, uh, this podcast to other people. We're grateful for that. Uh, many of you have have uh, been able to donate, and we thank you for that. So if you can, we would urge you to go to alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. Whatever size gift you're able to give is a, is a big help to us. And uh, both of those sites, Place for Truth and, and AllianceNet, have places for you to give. If you're downloading this on Apple Podcasts and you can give us a, a review, uh, that helps as well. And, uh, and as always, we want to thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Man was made in God's image in order to reflect the character and beauty of our Creator. Join us for Made in God's Image, the 2022 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, March 11th through 13th in Grand Rapids and April 29th through May 1st in Philadelphia. 
This year's sessions will present clear biblical teaching on man's nature and calling, the vital matter of human sexuality, and the purpose and identity provided to us by our Maker. Featuring H.B. Charles, Dan Doriani, Terry Johnson, Jonathan Gibson, and Richard Phillips. For complete information and to register now, log on reformedevents.org. That's reformedevents.org. Don't miss the learning, the worship, the fellowship of the 2022 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, March 11th through the 13th in Michigan, April 29th through May 1st in Pennsylvania, presented by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals.